1: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking an Intel
2: podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Annie and you're listening to Stuff I've Never Told You. For this episode, we are joined by Sonam Vashi. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
3: Totally. I am a freelance journalist in Atlanta, and I write about all kinds of things here, like crime or housing, uh, sometimes race, which is what I'm here to talk about today because I'm Asian American. Uh, My parents were immigrants from India, and uh, I thought it'd be a great idea for the show to talk about.
2: Yes, and I very much agreed. When we first, you're a bit of a name around town, at least for me. I'm always looking for a cool ladies in Atlanta I can hook up with, not in that way, talk to. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I had heard from a bunch of friends that you were someone that I should talk to. And then when I reached out to you, you had all of these ideas, and I was like, everyone, 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 I want to talk about all of those things. Um, but this, I think, this is a great one. I think it's something that is missing from our massive archive, and I'm so happy to have you here today to talk about it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And so we're going to be looking into questions of Asian American identity, what that means, and how it's changed. And this means we're going to be talking about some history, some stereotypes, media representation, and politics. It's kind of a, a lot uh, <laughs> to cover, um, but we're gonna we're going to cover it. We're going to do it. Before we dive in, though, here's a number for you, for you listeners, to show where we are. There are 19.5 million Asian Americans in the United States, and that is 6% of the population.
3: And it's also the fastest-growing minority group in the country, for now. Uh, Recent movies and shows like Crazy Rich Asians and Fresh Off the Boat uh, have given Asian Americans a lot more visibility in mainstream culture in the last few years, too. And like many racial groups, they're extremely diverse and have different histories. You know, for example, what a lot of people think about when they think of Asian Americans is people who recently immigrated to the United States, maybe only in the last few decades. But other Asian American groups have been here for centuries.
2: Yes, and that is a good segue to talk about some history. So I, as listeners of this show probably know, I'm a huge fan of talking about history. I love history. And I think it's important to better understand the factors at play in this conversation around Asian American identity and history does play a significant role in shaping our ideas around identity. And when we're talking about Asian immigration to the United States, the history is typically broken down into two main waves, which when you first were explaining this to me, I was like, I thought we were talking about the first and second wave of feminism. But there are two main <laughs> waves of Asian
3: American Asian immigration to the United States. Lots of waves, just a lot of ocean imagery.
2: I, I do like ocean imagery. It calms me down. <laughs> when I'm trying to sleep at night, I have a white noise machine. Ocean waves.
3: Wow. <laughs> Thank
2: you. Wow, indeed. <laughs> um, so the history is obviously going to be very condensed. But here we go. Here's some basics. If we look at the first wave, some of the first Asians to come to America were Filipino sailors toward the end of the 1500s, and half died on the journey. Of those that survived, most did not want to make the return trip over the Pacific. I wouldn't either. So they stayed. If we jump ahead, more Asian immigrants arrived in the 1700s and 1800s and many instances fleeing from poor situations as a result of colonialism. But often what they escaped to was indentured servitude on tobacco and sugar plantations in the British West Indies, Hawaii, and the southern United States. They were tricked and lied to to make these dangerous journeys and then take on these difficult, often dangerous jobs for five years before they gained freedom. These indentured laborers, called coolies, were mostly men, but some women were hired mostly as a way to keep the men from outright revolting because there were no women. After these five years were up, many stayed either out of shame at their earnings or because they had married a local who could not or would not make the journey back. And speaking of difficult jobs, if we look at the gold rush in California, a lot of Asian immigrants, particularly Chinese immigrants, found employment working on the construction of railroads in that state. As more and more arrived, they were harshly discriminated against, called swine, rats, or beast. And, sidebar that I found super interesting, but there's no time to include it in this episode. (laughs) During this time, Laundry was very expensive in San Francisco, so much so that it was cheaper to send your clothes to Honolulu to get them washed. That blows my mind. <laughs> Chinese immigrants saw an opportunity, and they went for it, and this was an industry that they were allowed to have success in. Not so for other industries. As a result of the influx of Chinese immigrants and fears of that, the cheap labor force that they provided to less than scrupulous employers, fears that this labor force was undercutting the wage of white Americans, the Supreme Court passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, which prohibited low-skilled and family immigration from that country. This law wasn't repealed until 1943 and is, in the words of Ji Young Fan, the only federal law ever to exclude a group of people by nationality. Some of this might sound disturbingly familiar, As part of this law, the government deployed, quote, Chinese catchers to the Mexican-U.S. border, and the Secretary of Labor said of the issue, not even a Chinese wall would stop immigrants from China.
3: That is so wild.
2: It is. It's disturbingly familiar. In 1871, the largest mass lynching in American history took place in Los Angeles when a mob of 500 murdered 17 Chinese men. And a couple of years later, in 1895, Kaiser Wilhelm awoke from a bad dream and then obviously requested a painting be done depicting the Archangel Michael terrorized by a vicious mob of Easterners, perfectly exemplifying the Yellow Peril, as it was called. And we've spoken before about how in Western society, Asian men and Eastern culture at large was, and often is, portrayed as effeminate, Aka weaker. Take this quote from the president of the American Federation of Labor at the time: "From the fact that Chinese people lived in America, meat versus rice, American manhood versus Asiatic coolism." You can see this sentiment swell in times of perceived economic threat by an Asian country or countries, like during the '80s with Japan's technological prowess. If you watch pretty much any '80s romantic comedy. You'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I um, also, side note, on the other show that I do, which is all about food and drink, um, Savor, we did an episode on tea, and I ran across an idea that I didn't get to look more into, but I would love to. But the, the work I was reading, the author suggested that the reason tea is feminized as more of something that lady, like tea time, um, is because it came from the East. As opposed to coffee, which was more like manly.
3: Gendered drinks You can't uh, not gender anything in the entire history of the world. We have to gender everything.
2: It's true. I want to do a whole mini series: whiskey, beer. Oh man! Lighter drinks are for women. Darker drinks are for men. Wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, future future research required. <laughs> Chinese immigrants were the largest group of Asian immigrants at the time and thus perceived as the most threatening. But this was not the only group of Asian immigrants arriving to the United States and not, of course, unfortunately, the only one to be negatively stereotyped. The United States Immigration Commission deemed Indians as the, quote, least desirable race of immigrants in 1911. After the editor of Washington's Bellingham reveal called Hindus, quote, repulsive in appearance and disgusting in their manners, the town mobbed together to, quote, drive out the Hindus over the course of a night in 1907. And they were successful. Around this time, we start seeing some laws and policy relevant to this conversation popping up across the country. There was the California Alien Land Law of 1913, which was designed to prevent Asians from competing with white businesses and farms.
3: And then there's my favorite, uh, slash most terrifying, um, Supreme Court ruling uh, in 1923 that defined what race is, basically, and limited who could become a naturalized citizen, which is where an Indian Sikh man named Bhagat Singh Tindh, who had served in the U.S. Army during World War I, uh, wanted to become a citizen, so he tried and... And his case reached the Supreme Court, which had decided in another case that being white meant being Caucasian. So Mr. Tind argued that he too was Caucasian because he was Aryan, because Aryans had conquered India in the 1500s. And since he belonged to a high caste in India, but the Supreme Court decided that given the common understanding of race in the United States, Tind couldn't be white because there had been too much, quote unquote, racial mixing between different people uh, in India. So, what that meant was that South Asians couldn't become naturalized citizens for a few decades after that.
2: Yeah. Um, and I think I mentioned to you earlier because I, my brain is strange sometimes, but uh, I was <laughs> somehow I've become an expert on spam. Don't ask me how, but this has happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and one of the reasons that spam, is so popular in Hawaii and um, other parts of South Asia is because of World War II, but also laws like this, where um, there was a law put in place that Japanese fishermen couldn't can basically it didn't say this, but it was to limit the competition with American mm-hmm. fishermen that they couldn't they could only fish within like a mile radius or something, and that is why that. Spam is so popular in Hawaii, for instance, spam masubi. And also, it is an interesting culmination of different ingredients because there was all this spam from World War II that was on the island and all of these immigrants who were there as well. And the cuisine kind of adopted spam in a way that is very delicious. And when I, I a lot of people I know, including me, Uh, for a long time just thought of Spam it's like this gross like it comes (laughs) out and it stays in the shape you
3: don't even know if it's like a solid or liquid (laughs) exactly
2: you've got a lot of questions about what's going on (laughs) what should I do with it but it has really been adopted in the cuisine there and I would put forth that it is pretty good
3: all right, I'm going to go look up some spam recipes after this.
2: Oh, you should. If I can
3: convert one person to <laughs> spam. I don't know why. I don't know how this has happened. We'll we'll open the trendy spam restaurant. It'll be great.
2: Oh, don't even joke about it. <laughs> I would do it. I would do it in a heartbeat. All right, but going back to depressing laws, a year later in 1924, an American policy was passed with the goal of, quote, preserving the idea of American homogeneity, that pretty much disallowed non-whites from immigrating to the United States. All immigration from Asia was outlawed with the creation of the Asiatic Barred Zone. And this was, of course, swiftly followed by the internment of Japanese-Americans during and after World War II.
3: And about 120,000 Japanese-Americans were interned during that time, which is a really substantial number even for now.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this was followed by... The second wave of Asian immigration to the United States, the Cold War, we have to talk about the Cold War in this conversation, uh, shifted American focus and fears elsewhere, especially for Asian nations not viewed as threats. The civil rights movement led to President Lyndon B. Johnson signing 1965's Immigration and Nationality Act, which got rid of racial quotas and made room for skills and family-based immigration. However, we should keep in mind this wasn't done with Asians in mind, but rather vocal and annoyed Northern Europeans. This act, of course, impacted the type of immigrants that came to the United States and made way for some stereotypes that we're going to get into later. Whatever the case... Asians immigrated to the United States all the same, resulting in the second wave of Asian immigrants. And in the mind of Erica Lee, author of The Making of Asian America, a History, creating two often discordant Asian Americas. After the events at Tiananmen Square, the U.S. enacted the Chinese Student Protection Act in 1992. And that meant that 55,000 green cards were given to Chinese immigrants, which also contributed to this whole second wave. And that, more or less, brings us to today to these discordant Asian Americas and to questions around identity and stereotypes. But first, it brings us to a quick break forward from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by
1: Snagajob
2: Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So another piece of this conversation is stereotypes. Where they come from, how they shape how we view people and ourselves and our identity, and how they impact everything on a societal level. And I know we've talked about it before, but policies get made, laws get enacted based on representation, what we see in the media and stereotypes. So, let's get into it. One of the first ones that we wanted to talk about was the model minority.
3: I think that's like the most pervasive one for sure in a variety of different ways. You know, it's not just like, this this is like a term that was coined that means that Asians are often pointed to as being the group that's seemingly high performing academically and socioeconomically. And so you hear, you know, the smart Asian, the doctor or engineer Asian, these sorts of things that sound like really good and positive stereotypes. But it's often used to deny the existence of structural racism among not only Asian Americans but also other non-white people, and it's really harmful for that reason. I think, you know, most often it's used to imply uh, either explicitly or implicitly that uh, black and Hispanic people are not working hard because if, you know, Asian Americans can do so well, then clearly other groups are not working that hard. But— You know, add that to the tiger mom stereotype that Asian parents are stricter than other parents or make their kids work harder, uh, and you get this myth of Asian exceptionalism, and that's not supported by the disaggregated data that you look at. So, you know, if you control for education, the Asian wage gap advantage disappears. Asian Americans are the most economically divided racial group in the country. So, you know, Asians overall rank as the highest earning group, but if you break that out by ethnicity, it shows a wide range of incomes and Uh, For example, Chinese Americans have a very high income overall, but the top earners are really shrouding the fact that there is a high rate of poverty among Chinese Americans. And, you know, depending on the different ethnicity, uh, it can depend on the reasons different immigrant groups came to the United States in the first place. Now, this is true for every racial group. You can disaggregate uh, Hispanics, black people, white people, and show differences based on ethnicity. But it's just so staggering among Asians. So, You know, 75% of Indian Americans, many who came under the H-1B visa program as highly skilled workers, have a college degree. But that's only true for a third of Vietnamese Americans, many who came as refugees from the Vietnam War. And more than one in three Burmese Americans and Bhutanese Americans are in poverty. And even those who are successful, particularly those who came as highly skilled workers, uh, face systemic racism. I think you were talking about the bamboo ceiling, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found that term. When I was reading about Fortune and their 500 top companies, um, only 3% of those are run by Asians.
3: And it's really interesting that you see this discrimination even at the highest level because there's also evidence of discrimination in hiring practices. So researchers at Ryerson University and the University of Toronto found that job applicants with Chinese, Indian, or Pakistani-sounding names were 28% less likely to get called back for an interview. And that's something that also affects other non-white minorities, too.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, is this this model minority thing, is that something that you experience personally?
3: Oh, totally. I mean, I think there's a, definitely, like, a sense that if you're doing well in school and you're Asian, it's just, like, because you're Asian. And, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of different things going on there. Maybe, you know, there's a stereotype, for example, of Indian Americans particularly, but Asian Americans generally doing really well in spelling bees. I don't know if mm-hmm. you've ever watched the National Spelling Bee, but there's always just, like, a very cute... Asian kid who wins most of the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, like, I definitely was also in the spelling bee. So, like, some stereotypes may be true. <laughs> but, <laughs> but clearly, like, that's not what happened. You know, my dad was an immigrant under this, like, H-1B visa program. And so that's a very different than being an immigrant under different types of circumstances. And I think success um, and is, is definitely driven by a lot of these different histories.
2: Yeah. Um, I... I've been speaking a lot to two friends of mine because I recently did um, an episode around first um, first generation immigrants and just hearing this this pressure that they felt to represent their country and their religion. Um, I kind of pushed them to to do things and like they felt that they had to perform at a level that was really high
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that their parents would push them to do that as well because it was like where uh, we're representing our whole country and oh, culture. totally,
3: totally. I mean, th- you know, th- there's this really great piece that was published recently in BuzzFeed about uh, immigrant debt and this idea that, like, um, you, like, so many people who are first-generation Americans feel indebted to the sacrifices that their parents made coming to this country in the first place and, you know, uh, upending everything, coming without, you know, money or knowing anyone um, and just making this really Difficult journey, and then like the, their kids are just like, okay, well, like how do I honor that sacrifice? Even though I don't want to, you know, do the job that my parents want me to do, or like do, you know, go into academia or go into being a doctor or whatever. Like, want to be like a journalist, bum like myself, or <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there is this like uh, definite pressure that comes with wanting to acknowledge and and honor your parents uh, and. You know, being the only one in a con- in a classroom or a workplace that looks like you, I think definitely contributes to that.
2: Yeah. Um, do you mind if I ask how how your parents took that you're going to do journalism? <laughs> they're
3: still, they're still dealing with it, like several years after the fact. But uh, I think they've uh, we've we've reached a uh, a uh, what's what's the word detente? I would call it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially because I'm freelance, they um. They just think like they, for a while. They thought I was unemployed, and I was like, "No, no, no, no! I'm just like very employed. just like by a lot of different people." And they're like, "You don't go into an office. <laughs> what are hmm. you doing every day?" <laughs> they think it's a big scheme. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't, I don't know what they think I'm doing for money, but uh, they, 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 they've, they've definitely approached it with suspicion.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, my parents still tell people like I'm. Basically, I'm not sure what she does.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's very honoring to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
2: (laughs) Something else we have to talk about um, is exoticizing or fetishizing of Asian women. Because I would wager that when I say fetish, two things come to mind. One is foot fetish and the other is Asian fetish, Asian woman fetish.
3: Yeah, it is a huge part of being Asian American and being woman or woman presenting in this country. And um, I think there is, uh, you know, particularly with Asian women with East and Southeast Asian heritage, um, I think our fetishizers being, you know, submissive. It's extremely sexual or other stereotypes that are really damaging Um and, you know, again, like, being fetishized might sound like a good thing, but I think for most women, like, we know it's not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, it can signal how Asian and, and other non-white women are otherized and stereotyped and are just seen as this, like, object or thing or uh, non-human uh, entity.
2: Yeah, because it's really dehumanizing. I have... Um I have a friend who is online dating and she is Asian and she tells me that she has a couple of rules. And one is if someone asks her, where are you from? But where, really, where are you from? She's immediately <laughs> like, nope, girl, goodbye. Yeah. Um, and another is that it's not really a rule, but she just is very nervous about people, um, particularly white men, who it seems that they've just dated. Asian women. Oh,
3: totally. Yeah. No, that's a huge red flag. I, I mean, particularly with white men, too. I, I would say, like, when I've dated white men in the past, it's been, like, have you only dated Asian women? Because that's a huge problem. But also, am I the only, like, non-white person you've ever dated? Because that's also a problem. <laughs> like, I don't want to be either of the two things. You have to have had, like, one, like, yeah. in your past that, like, okay, let's, this makes me feel better. Like, I'm not, like, uh, the first one, but right. I'm also not, like, the eighth one.
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You got to balance. You got to find that balance. Right. I love um, hearing people's personal dating rules. And I pers- <laughs> I would love to do a whole episode that's just like, tell me your dating rules and
3: why. That'd be great.
2: I think it'd be fascinating. Uh, but uh, this whole fetishizing of Asian women is colloquially called yellow fever. And also uh, rice queens when queer men fetishize Asian men. And we see this everywhere in our culture. It was even a bit in one of comedian Amy Schumer's stand-up routines. She said, quote, I can't compete with an Asian chick because, punchline, they have small vaginas. That's how omnipresent this fetish is in our culture. It is a joke.
3: Yeah, and it's, it's hammered home in all types of media. I mean, if you ever watched anime or manga, which, like, most of the women in there are even hypersexualized, and that's off. That's from an Asian country, Japan. You know, there are a lot of things contributing to this, and it has real-world effects. Uh, a study conducted by the dating app Are You Interested found that Asian women were the most desirable group, not just among white men, but all men except for Asian men. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I think the study found that like almost every group preferred different races, but for some reason, Asian women were the most desirable. But The study I think you found was less than rigorous, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, And there were also findings from OKCupid, a sociologist named Kevin Lewis. And he found that all groups preferred to strike up a conversation with someone of their own race. All except Asian women, who again, uh, preferred messaging white men. A... Psychology Today article looking at this phenomenon found that a lot of non-Asian men held a belief about Asian women that they are submissive, particularly when it comes to sex. As one respondent put it, quote, We men want a princess in public and a whore in the bedroom. Simple as that.
3: You know, they're just not asking a lot. Right. I mean, they just want a princess in public.
2: And the great <laughs> words of Usher freaking a sheets.
3: <laughs> what is it? Lady, lady in the Streets, freaking uh, the Bed. Oh, yeah,
2: and it's not for. even Usher. It's, it's somebody else, but it's an Usher song. I uh, don't know much about pop culture. I want
3: to say that's Lil Jon's verse, although I yes. could be, if I'm wrong on that, it'll be very embarrassing.
2: So. <laughs> we'll flag that don't to come thank back you. <laughs> <laughs> for correction. <laughs> and um, there are centuries of history and culture uh, that have gone into the construction of this stereotype, starting with the opening of trade between Asia and Europe. So art depicting geishas made its way to Europe that would then be highly sexualized for the Western male. And I w- was reading an essay about this, and i I think it is worth bringing up. Just remember that the Western male at this time was living in a a very repressive sexually culture, um you know, women, women as well. like they, they all everyone was not allowed to openly express. Sexual desire—it mm-hmm. was very frowned upon. Uh, you would go to hell; like it was frightening. <laughs> yeah. we, like we laugh about it now, but yeah, women didn't show their ankles. Um, so this new this art is coming in that isn't so covering up and ha- shying away from the human body. Uh, and then, if we move away, I'll move forward a little bit to 1887, French author Pierre Loti pins Madame Chrysanthem and. It really can't be understated the impact this had on shaping how Westerners viewed Asian women, and specifically Japanese women. In Loti's lifetime, it was reprinted over 200 times and translated into every European language. It follows a naval officer who takes a temporary wife while stationed in Japan, one that is Dalek. And a lot of the words that are used to describe this this character are small, dainty words that I would associate with being submissive. Mm-hmm. And if this story sounds familiar, it could be because it is generally accepted to have inspired the opera Madama Butterfly, first performed in 1904 very similar story it follows an american officer who takes a temporary wife while in japan but then leaves her behind to marry a white american woman at the end of his service but not before his temporary japanese wife sacrifices her religion her family her son and then takes her own life all for this man who left her and if you haven't seen madama butterfly but that story still sounds familiar Perhaps you saw the reworked version that takes place in Vietnam, Miss Saigon, which, since its premiere in 1989, has been performed all over the world and still turns a profit. Now, there is this kind of complement to the Madama butterfly stereotype, archetype, and that is the dragon lady, which kind of emerged, you know... 1990s, 2000s, I would say it became popularized, but this is kind of the sexy assassin who can do martial arts, but essentially still is very one-dimensional, very uh, stereotyped character. We're
3: talking like Kill Bill style. Yes. Maybe uh, Charlie's Angels, Lucy Luce.
2: Yeah. Oh, Rush Hour 2.
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I can't believe I'm so glad you knew it. Oh, I've seen the movie maybe 100 times. <laughs> Not, the, the first one I've seen like maybe 50, but like the second one 100
2: times. You really went in. <laughs> oh, Chris man.
3: Tucker, a classic.
2: We're destined to be <laughs> friends. <I knew> it.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the US's it. Um, the US Army's presence throughout Asia during and after World War II and the Korean War and the Vietnam War cemented this sexualized perception of Asian women. So-called juicy bars and brothels established themselves around military camps with an exclusive U.S. soldier clientele. For a lot of these men, this was their first exposure to Asian women, and it was through sex workers. In the aftermath of the Korean and Vietnam Wars, a lot of Asian women and children were airlifted out and brought to the United States— giving rise to a savior narrative, and it started appearing in our media.
3: Yeah, and, and many Asian American men, you know, kind of as we talked about earlier with tea, and uh, they've had the opposite experience. They're often desexualized, not seen as masculine, and they're going back to this effeminate history, and it's an awful dehumanizing stereotype that's still perpetuate, perpetuated, I have, you know plenty of uh straight male friends who are Asian American who have said that like they're dating particularly within the interracial sphere like without outside of Asian women um have had the stereotype lopped against them or even with Asian women sometimes and like um it's just been really disheartening for a lot of them
2: uh, yeah i'm sure um and it it doesn't help that in our media we see these these representations everywhere um they these stereotypes are reinforced and perhaps even solidified, but uh, and through like the Tiger Mom model minority, Madama Butterfly, Dragon Lady, and that's what little representation there is mm-hmm. anyway, because there isn't much. Asian Americans make up only one percent of Hollywood's leading roles.
3: Yeah, and and examples that were there were usually like tokens or about you know very very good, but like kind of sometimes stereotypical stories about the Vietnam War. Or, of course, George Takei as Sulu in Star Trek. Yeah. But in recent years, the good thing is that Asian-American visibility has increased. Um, I think recently, you know, women like Sandra Oh became the first Asian-American to win the lead actress, Golden Globe. Uh, plus, there's the mega hit from last year, Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, and uh, it's become so popular both as a rom-com and as just the first movie to have an all-Asian cast in almost twenty twenty three years. And it definitely represented just a small slice of Asian America, obviously the crazy rich kind, with generational wealth and economic privilege. Very few brown or darker-skinned faces in that movie, too. But it opened the door for more movies about the Asian American experience. And, you know, it's important to create, as author and Pulitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen has written, uh, about narrative plenitude, the idea that we need more stories about Asian Americans and about other marginalized groups so that one story doesn't carry the burden of representing every experience.
2: Yes, and this is a big pet peeve of mine because every time a story comes out that is all mostly Asian cast, and everyone's like, will it make money? Because that's going to determine if we make any more. Right. And yet, I mean, movies that are bad, that have a usually white male lead, that don't make any money, they don't get the same pressure. Like, they're, they're just going to be me. There's not so much writing on them. Why can't we have bad movies for everybody? Right, right. <laughs> Good movies for everybody, too, but bad movies. Like, you no, know?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I mean, Planet 2 doesn't mean that they're all, like, amazing Pulitzer Prize winners, uh, for sure. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of probably, like, bad <laughs> examples, uh, uh-huh. probably one of the other, you know, well-known Asian-American characters that we sh- would we'll go and risk that mentioning is a poo the lovable convenience store clerk on The Simpsons, who was recently removed from the show after comedian Hari Kondabolu made a documentary called The Problem with Apu. And the problem is that Apu's stereotypically thick Indian accent, which I will not do, (laughs) (laughs) but I thought about it, uh, is voiced by non-South Asian Hank Azaria, uh, one of the show's uh, creators who also voices a lot of other characters and who Kondabolu says... uh, this is a quote from Contebellu, Uh Sounds like a white guy doing an impression of a white guy making fun of my father. It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> really accurate. <laughs> um, and you know, some South Asians aren't offended by a poo, but it's not hard to see the soft racism, um, which is you know just been described particularly well by New Yorker writer Hua Su, who says that even though the Simpsons might not have wanted to offend with Apu, it's still collapsing an entire ethnic group into exaggerated characteristics, like a silly accent or a submissive slogan like, thank you, come again. And that, I think, in and of itself is, is particularly problematic.
2: Yeah. Um, I remember when all of this was kind of happening, it was a, a pretty big deal. I haven't seen the show since, since Apu left, so I'd be interested to check out What's going on there now? Yeah, That's, can't believe it's still in the air. I don't <laughs> <No>. <laughs> mean that negatively. I no, just it- <laughs> like wow,
3: it's been like a million years. I think yeah. it's like still the longest running show ever. I, I mean, I mean, I love The Simpsons. Don't get me wrong. And and you know, I think I, I remember like seeing a poo as a kid and being like, well, yeah, like you know, a poo is like a touchstone that you can refer to. Like yeah, yeah, like you know, you would you talk to like kids and they'd be like. Like where's India, and you'd be like, like a poo, you know, like just I'm, I'm like a poo. Like this, right. this is your reference point. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> it's a double-edged sword in some cases.
2: It is, yeah. Again, maybe it'd be it'd be nice to have more representation yes. that you could point to instead of just <laughs> a poo. <laughs> yeah, we can dream. Uh, something else that you you brought to my attention is kind of within this world of hip-hop that there is kind of an interesting exchange between Asian-American or just Asian and hip-hop.
3: Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, it's there's a few different groups that have been coming out. I think there's like the uh, rap label uh, 88 Rising. Um, lots of people who are, who are Asian-American or Asian uh, who are, who are uh, forming hip-hop groups or, or other acts, and, and K-pop has been borrowing a lot from... Uh, from hip hop as well uh, for just in terms of like the beats the the like a, a lot of different parts of the act um and 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 it is this like really interesting exchange like you were saying because you know i, I think that hip hop has obviously drawn from a lot of different sources but it's so firmly rooted in the black community and so there are so, so like so many important, complex questions about some of these newer groups, which have sometimes been accused of appropriating black culture or sometimes even ignoring some of the anti-black racist comments from their fans. Um, And, and, you know, Asian Americans have certainly benefited from the work of black and brown activists and the civil rights movements of, of those activists in this country, and there's still a lot of work that the Asian American community at large has to do when it comes to interracial interactions, um, particularly, you know, anti-blackness is really prominent in many different Asian American communities. Um, and there's, you know, even this issue of colorism and racism within the Asian American community. I mean, you could just, if you go inside a, I mean, almost any Asian American store, whether it's Filipino, whether it's Indian, whether it's Chinese, uh, and you go to the, like, skincare aisle, you will see, like, skin lightening creams. The one in the Indian store is called Fair and Lovely. Trust me, there's nothing fair and lovely about it. Like, <laughs> it, it is literally like a bleaching cream, and people use it because they want their skin to appear lighter because being dark-skinned, especially for women, of course, is just seen as this really bad thing. you seem is as less attractive. Um, and, you know, we could talk for, like, a million years about, like, all, where that comes from and and why, but, like— you know the odd distinctions between white Asians and brown Asians, even within the Asian American community. But like, th- this is just something that like exists in our home countries, but is also something that exists in the Asian American experience still. That I think uh, needs to be talked about a little bit more.
2: Yeah, um, and as as is clear, I, I am not too big into pop culture. But we did talk about um, when we were preparing for this, like. Chun from mm-hmm. Nicki Minaj and Katy Perry when she did that kind of geisha.
3: Yeah. So <laughs>
2: um,
3: lots of like weird, um, definitely stereotypical uh, things that you see in pop culture that are kind of like sometimes given a pass, sometimes not, like uh, that I definitely deserve to also be co- talked about when it comes to like anti Asian or, or stereotypical bias.
2: Yeah, for sure. There's a lot to go into there. Um, And we still have some more in this episode. But first, we have a quick break forward from our sponsor.
1: This episode is brought to you by Snagajob.
2: Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com.
1: Tennessee sounds perfect.
2: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So taking all of this, all of these histories, these stereotypes, it plays into the question of the Asian American identity. Nowadays, some folks are rejecting the label Asian American in favor of something more specific. But this label was introduced, when it was introduced, it was meant to foster unity. It was coined by historian and activist Yuji Ichioka in 1968. He was partly inspired by the success of the Black Panther movement, and he hoped it would help to combat direct discrimination that had been aimed at Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans. When Japanese Americans were imprisoned after World War II, some Chinese Americans carried signs or were buttons to signify that they were not Japanese American but Chinese American. This unification under one label might offer protection. That was the thought. Asian American was also a way to ditch derogatory terms given by society in a way to self-define. And then we come to the murder of a Chinese American, Vincent Chin, in 1982. And this murder increased the feeling that there needed to be a coalition. Chen was beaten to death by white auto workers unhappy with competition from Japanese auto companies.
3: Yeah, and his killers were sentenced to probation and fined $3,000. And when that happened, protesters marched in cities across the country, giving rise to this new pan-Asian identity and unity that was forged by the realization that if Chin, who was the son of Chinese immigrants, could be killed because of Japanese auto imports, maybe being Asian American and being able to be mistaken for other uh, groups by white people and by other Americans had consequences. Uh, And that kind of misconception shapes the racial experiences of so many Asian Americans. I mean, if you look at the experiences of Sikh Americans who— Follow a South Asian religion that's distinct from Hinduism and Islam. There is a long history of hate crimes against Sikh Americans in the United States, often because white racists are mistaking them for Muslims or otherwise demonizing their faith. But this idea that Asian American is such this the, a huge overlarge category, it, it is that way sometimes because if I'm able to be mistaken for someone else, that means that I already have a vested interest in how the other group gets treated. And I think that's how this kind of unity gets formed.
2: Yeah, and um, it it was meant to be that way, but if we look at uh, South Asians, um, Asian Americans has frequently left out people from South Asia, or at least in the minds of people who might use that term. So that comes to the question of who gets the label of Asian American. As the author of this Washington Post piece, Sonia Rao, points out when describing actors John Cho or Constance Wu, the media typically uses Asian Americans, whereas actors like Mindy Kaling or Aziz Ansari are described differently.
3: Yeah, and and the term Asian American also includes Pacific Islanders sometimes or native Hawaiians and many Central Asians like people from Kazakhstan or Afghanistan and Southwest Asians like people from parts of the Middle East. So it for this huge group of people with so many different histories and languages and cultures that, you know, don't have representation in so many places and you see many people refer to themselves by their ethnicity. Rather than by Asian Americans. So I will call myself Indian American most of the time, not Asian American because I mean, what what does that even mean sometimes?
2: right, exactly. Um and another another piece of this conversation and kind of this fragmentation of the Asian American identity is affirmative action, which has been in the news a lot lately. in august twenty eighteen, the Department of Justice came out on the side of a group of Asian students that were suing Harvard for racial discrimination during the admissions process, so Harvard University, for our international listeners. From the student's legal filing, the process, quote, significantly disadvantages Asian American applicants compared to applicants of other racial groups. Worth pointing out, the person who leads the organization suing Harvard, Edward Blum, has multiple similar lawsuits against other schools, but on behalf of white students. And just a really quick aside, really, really, really quick, (laughs) the term affirmative action first appeared in terms of a U.S. policy in 1935 with the National Labor Relations Act. This act primarily allowed workers to unionize freely and without fear. If an employer was found in noncompliance, firing an employee over unionizing, the employee would be rehired and or be otherwise compensated via affirmative action. President FDR's Secretary of the Interior extended it establishing a fixed percentage of African American employees for the Public Works Administration. A lot of local institutions refused to obey. JFK's Executive Order 10925 demanded government contractors quote "take affirmative action to achieve non-discrimination." Affirmative action was meant to acknowledge how the inequalities and injustices of the past still existed and continued to impact the prospects of African Americans. In 1967, it was also used as an argument to ban discrimination on the basis of sex. In 1978, the Supreme Court hears the first case of reverse discrimination made by a white man who believed he would have gotten into his university of choice if he had been a minority. He lost the case. In the 90s, Californians passed California Civil Rights Initiative, or Prop 209. This initiative did away with affirmative action in the realm of education. It passed in 1996, and between 1995 and 1998, admissions to Berkeley and UCLA dropped by 59% for African Americans. Several other states followed suit, but two more cases brought to the Supreme Court have lost. Okay, <laughs> back to Harvard. This was the culmination of a couple of grievances, this lawsuit. Harvard's own internal research division found that if the only factor considered was academic performance, 43% of the admitted class would be Asian. Now, if you introduce other consideration like athletics, legacies, extracurriculars, the number goes down to 26%. When you add in demographics, the number drops to 18%.
3: And we should add that this particular lawsuit, which was filed by a Chinese-American, has in particular gotten a lot of support from Chinese-American advocates and media and uh, just across the country for many people who uh, feel similarly to the plaintiff.
2: Related have been a handful of lawsuits that have aligned white people and a specific group of Asian-Americans Two 2018 lawsuits against Google alleged that the white male plaintiffs were being illegally discriminated against due to hiring quotas that favor females and non-favored minorities. Both lawsuits included Caucasian and Asian males as those being discriminated against.
3: Yeah, but there's definitely a reality of proximity to whiteness that's going on here that many Asians have benefited from, and it's something that many other non-white people, particularly those who identify as black, can't benefit from.
2: And this isn't the first time a minority has been grouped together with the majority in this case, white people. Sociologists call this whitening. The term comes to us partly courtesy of a Portuguese phrase out of Brazil, quote, money whitens. Previous groups that were once considered as non-white include the Irish and the Italians, and this involves a certain level of erasure and cultural assimilation.
3: And this affirmative action issue has really, you know, I I think split the Asian-American community in this country in so many different ways. And it's really important to note that a majority of Asian-Americans support affirmative action. It has benefited so many of Asian-Americans' lives. Uh, The research group AAPI Data that stands for Asian-American Pacific Islander data, uh, which is one of the few that disaggregate data based on ethnicity, Uh, they found that a majority of most Asian ethnic groups support affirmative action, from 84% support among Indian Americans to 64% support among Chinese Americans. And, you know, there's a lot of differences within those groups. So, you know, less than half of Vietnamese Americans, by contrast, support affirmative action. And that's tied to the fact that many Vietnamese Americans lean Republican, which is also influenced by a history with communism and the Vietnam War that's not unlike that of many Cuban Americans. So, you know, again, really important to remember that Asian Americans aren't a monolith, both economically and politically.
2: And the GOP has come out on the side of Asian Americans in the effort, well, Asian Americans, like Chinese Americans particularly in this case, um, of this Harvard lawsuit, in the effort to end affirmative action. For, as you can imagine, the GOP has a different and entirely political reasons, using the concerns of Asian Americans to help white Americans. The Republican Party is courting Asian Americans.
3: And, you know, Asian Americans largely vote Democratic, with some notable exceptions, which include Vietnamese and Filipinos.
2: And several articles I read have advised the Democratic Party to sound the alarm over this, to really pay attention to this issue.
3: Yeah, and, and, you know, many Asian Americans uh, in different parts of the country have been politically apathetic in some places, you know, lower than average turnout rates than compared with other uh, minority groups. And the continuing evolution of Asian American political identity is definitely something to watch out for, I think, as time goes on. And, you know, I I think the most important thing to remember out of all of this that we've talked about over the last uh, hour or so is that Asian-American identity is extremely complicated and something that is still under construction, Uh, especially as our population grows and we become more visible in mainstream society and as things like affirmative action really take you know, have us take stock of what it is that we believe and what our histories are in this country. And there's not one prevailing narrative that explains what being Asian-American is.
2: Absolutely. And as I was discussing with you when we were planning this, and as I kind of alluded to at the top, we don't learn about this stuff in the United States. Um, A lot of this history was new to me. and. That We just don't have this background, and it is so important when understanding where people come from and where they're going. And when we're talking about these two discordant Asian Americas, to me it sounds like it, it is, uh, one, the first wave has all this history, and then the second wave kind of doesn't get taught that when they're already in the United States, so they had a different experience. And to to know all that stuff is good for all of us. I'm a big proponent, if if you didn't know, I'm a big proponent of education and listening to other people um, and learning from other people's experiences. So this has been really valuable for me as well.
3: Me too. <laughs>
2: yeah, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that we got to do this and that you came on. Um, do you have any recommended reading from from Asian women or Asian people, Asian American people? Yeah,
3: totally. I, you know, one of the books that we mentioned earlier, I think was something that we turned to when we were doing this episode, uh, The Making of Asian America, which is a book by Erica Lee. It came out a couple of years ago. Um, it is very long and very detailed, but it, I think it does give a great um, overview of how, Asian-Americans came to this country, why we're here, um, all of that stuff. And, you know, of course, like, pop culture, we would be remiss if we didn't, like, throw shout-outs to, I think, some of the famous Asian-Americans out there, you know, from Aparna Nancherla, who's, like, a hilarious comedian. You should totally follow her on Twitter, to uh, Asif Manvi, to Constance Wu, the uh, actress in Crazy Witch Asians and Fresh Off the Boat, and, uh, you know, Hiro Murai, who directed... uh, Atlanta, the sh- TV show, and who's just, like, a really wonderful artist uh, and does a lot of music videos. Asian Americans, all over the creative spheres. Watch out. Yeah. 2019.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watch out and um, support, support their work. And uh, speaking of... Where could the good listeners find you?
3: <laughs> you will find me online in the digital nightmare we call the Internet. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you can find my work at uh or I write around Atlanta. If you uh, live around here, please uh, hit me up to say hey. And... Uh,
2: I may say hey back for sure <laughs> oh a steady maybe I like those <laughs> a,
3: definite, a definite I'll hit you back in like three to five days <laughs>
2: <laughs> perfect I love it thank you so much for joining us I hope that you'll you'll come back this was such a delight having you
3: thank you so much I totally will
2: and for you listeners if you would like to reach out to us you can our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com you can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at Stuff Mom never told you. Thanks as always to our producer, Andrew Howard, and thanks to you for listening. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at
1: tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year